You're listening to episode 222 of the Master Your Mind, Business, and Life podcast. I think it's incredibly special that today's episode number is 222, 222. As you may or may not know, depending on how long you've been listening to the show, I love numbers, especially repeating ones, and I follow things such as numerology and also angel numbers. The angel number 222 is said to be a message of faith and trust from your angels. And today's guest, well, the lessons of faith and trust have echoed through the past decade of his life. Miguel Sancho is the author of More Than You Can Handle, a rare disease, a family in crisis, and the cutting-edge medicine that cured the incurable. The book chronicles the lives, deaths, and rebirths of patients and staff at the Duke University Hospital Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Unit, where his own son's life was saved in 2016. This is what we're talking about today, but let me share a little bit more on Miguel as I think parts of his profession tie into our conversation and may make more sense as you're listening. So in addition to being an author, Miguel is also an executive producer of non-scripted television documentaries and series, currently show running and developing projects with Six West Productions. His most recent project, The Proof is Out There, premiered on the History Channel in January 2021. He has also worked with A&E on the series Cults and Extreme Beliefs. And prior to his work at A&E Networks, Miguel accumulated more than two decades of experience producing national television news broadcasts, most recently as senior producer for the ABC News program 2020. Miguel was responsible for many of the most high-profile projects in the program's recent history, working extensively with the top talents such as Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters, Elizabeth Vargas, David Muir, and Dan Harris. He and his teams have won many of the industry's top journalism awards, and in 2017, he won an Emmy for the hour-long documentary special on the Las Vegas Massacre, and the Black Patriots Project was nominated for a 2020 Emmy. Now, I actually summarize Miguel's bio, but after this conversation, I encourage you to read his full bio on this week's episode notes on mindbizlife.com because really, I didn't even scratch the surface. Today's conversation really touched me to my core. Miguel and his family's story left me deep-seated in gratitude. So while you're listening today, be sure to screenshot to share that you're listening, throw it on Instagram stories, tag me in it at mindbizlife, and let's start a conversation. This episode is brought to you by Spiritually Seeking. When you go to spiritually-seeking.com and enter the promo code PODCAST at checkout, you can save 20% on numerology reports, affirmation cards, and life guidance sessions. Just head over to spiritually-seeking.com and enter the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Are you ready to meet Miguel and hear the story of a rare disease a family in crisis, and the cutting-edge medicine that cured the incurable? You know what to do. Tune in, turn it up, let's go. You're listening to Master Your Mind, Business, and Life. Conversations with everyday world shifters, truth seekers, and rule breakers. Here's your host, Lauren Smith. Hi, Miguel. Welcome to the show. What an honor it is to share the mic with you today. Lauren, it is such an honor to be here and um, to to be able to speak a little bit to your audience. And thank you to your audience for giving us a little bit of their time. Well, we also need to thank the ever so amazing Liz Carlisle for connecting us. I'm so glad she did because the more I learn about you and your story, the more intrigued I become. 
<laughs> yeah, no, she's great. And uh, actually, just in the last couple of weeks, um, my wife and I have both been dabbling in some of her guided meditations, and they're really quite wonderful. Oh, so, I love those. Her Wednesday meditations, I, I believe. Yeah. Are they Wednesday or Monday? I know they're they're amazing. I love doing those as well, especially when I can catch them. But mm-hmm. but we're here to talk today about whew, your journey because you have led an epic career. You have produced some of the world's leading stories on television. And then you find yourself almost living the news. So if you will, will you share your story with us and how your family's lives were upended by your son's diagnosis? Absolutely. Um, The only thing I would say just kind of as a disclaimer is that I, you know, don't put myself forward as an expert or a guru or anything other than a guy who had a pretty intense experience, uh, tried to learn stuff from it is continuing to try to learn and um, wrote a book about it to try to you know, communicate that experience and, and help perhaps other families who've gone through the same thing. Um, so with that, with that disclaimer, um, yes, I was a relatively successful uh, network television producer and I had a wonderful wife and uh, a wonderful daughter, four-year-old daughter, when my son was born, our son was born, my wife, Felicia, should be introduced here because she really is the hero of the story in many ways. Hmm. And within um, seven weeks of that wonderful moment, May 1st, 2012, when he was born, and we just thought our lives were going to be, you know, not perfect, but certainly overall happy and uh, orderly. Um, he started getting a series of severe, mysterious infections, odd fevers, uh, abscesses that required um, minor surgeries. And we were just going in and out of the hospital um, for months, and we had never done that. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I say in the book, there's, there's two kinds of parents in this world, those who've never taken their kid to an emergency room and those who have. And just getting tossed into what we call a hospital world was just, was just very, very jarring and disruptive to begin with. But we thought it was going to end at some point. We think, oh, okay, this is bad now, but it'll get figured out and then we'll just get back on track, right? right. That's, what your, that's what your brain does. You just want to get back on track when there's ever kind of, any kind of disruption or deviation from your understood trajectory. But he kept getting sick. And my wife, God bless her, um, said, I think there's something seriously wrong here, something systemic. We need to go see an immunologist. And after this brilliant um, immunologist performed some very clever, medical detective work, essentially, and um, started screening for all sorts of tests and, excuse me, um, started performing all sorts of tests for exotic conditions, we did indeed get the diagnosis that he had been born with a very rare and historically lethal uh, immune deficiency called CGD. And basically what it meant is that uh, due to a single genetic mutation on his X chromosome, our son, Sebastian, couldn't fight off uh, a range of bacterial and fungal infections that normal people with fully functioning immune systems can. And as a result, we had to get our heads around the fact that there was no cure for this, um, uh, as normally understood. Mm -hmm. They uh, could put him on a lifelong program of medications and excuse me, environmental restrictions that would help manage the disease. But even under the best circumstances of managing the disease, his quality of life 
and most likely his quantity of life would be diminished. And uh, he could still expect to have a serious life-threatening infection once every few years. There was one curative treatment. And the thing was that that treatment was itself one of the longest, most painful and risky medical procedures known to modern medical science, which is a bone marrow transplant, commonly known as a bone marrow transplant, more specifically known as a metapoietic stem cell transplant, which essentially isn't, the layman's term for it is an immune system transplant. Um, it's a procedure that wipes out the existing immune system using, in our case, very severe chemotherapy drugs. And then if you're lucky enough to have a, a donor unit, some donor cells that, that could be a match, trying to rebuild a whole new immune system from scratch, which sounds easy when, you know, I just say it in a paragraph, but again, it's one of the most delicate and risky things that you can do. Wow. So what made you in that moment lean towards that option? Because I can only imagine, first of all, hearing that news, like incurable, may not have the best quality of life. Like as a parent, I'm sure your heart must have just shattered. That's a very good way of putting it. Uh, in the book, you know, there's a chapter I call Overboard, and that's referencing a story I, I read about in and um, reported on a little bit of a guy who was on a cruise ship years ago who fell off the seventh deck of a cruise ship in the Caribbean and just found himself swimming in, in the Gulf of Mexico as the cruise ship was sailing over the horizon. And that's kind of the closest analogy I can come to what it's like. You mm. are suddenly in this ocean of fear and anger and sadness with no real bearings on how to move forward. You see your life steaming <laughs> away from you over the horizon, leaving you behind. And you're kind of fumbling for a way to, to just survive. And with rare diseases in particular, it's tough because they're rare. So right. there isn't a, a big patient population to study. There isn't a lot of, of data from which um, the specialists can draw solid conclusions. And there aren't a lot of specialists. So, and I'm sure there's uh, also, there's not the community support of like other people, right? Cause like if you, if you have something like cancer, there's other people who have had it, who can share their experience, who can kind of, you know, give you that support that, you know, you need in that moment, like a rare disease. You're lucky if you, I mean, how many people have the disease that he has? Right. So in the, in the narrow definition of his particular disease, CGD, that occurs in about one out of every 200 or 250,000 births. Wow. So not a lot. Yeah. In the broader category of primary immune deficiencies, of which there are hundreds, um, you know, there's a lot of people dealing with those, again, in the, in, the, in the broadest possible category. And we were able to find some community. I mean, thank God for the internet, right? Yeah. We, we were able to find um, both other families dealing with CGD, we were able to get uh, support and help from the Immune Deficiency Foundation, which plays a you know, significant role in the book. Um, I will say this, though. I made a big mistake the night of the diagnosis by Googling the disease. And I don't like giving unsolicited advice, but if you get a scary diagnosis, please, whatever you do, I strongly urge you not to Google it within the first 48 hours because 
all these you know kind of horror stories and worst case scenarios that would pop up uh, in the search engine optimizations, and it will just send you down um, a real a real dark place. Or at least it did in my case. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I'm sure that probably just like mustered up anxieties and fears that you weren't even thinking of in that moment. Like it just gave you more to think about. Absolutely. And to go back to your original question, how do we end up deciding on uh, going with a transplant? That was in and of itself a very difficult position. You know, there are situations in life where, you know, every move you make could make the situation worse, right? Every move you make has risks and disadvantages. And that was the situation with us. I mean, this is going to sound a little, I'm, I'm trying hard to make this sound right. Leukemia, okay, is a very difficult disease. I wouldn't wish leukemia on anybody. But for a lot of people who get diagnosed with leukemia, the path forward is relatively straight. It's you have to get a bone marrow transplant or you're going to die soon, mm. okay? With us, it was you could try to live with this disease with its ups and downs. You could try to wait long enough for there to be a breakthrough um, gene therapy, you know, which we've been waiting on for 15 years, but actually might now be right around the corner. Or you can go with the one proven curative uh, treatment path that we know of, which is uh, transplantation. And it took us years to make that decision. Part of that time was spent just trying to figure out what the best place to transplant would be because not every place is the same. Not every place does transplants for this particular condition. Finding a donor, <clears throat> which was this huge quest that we just ended up getting you know, more shut down and more defeated every time. We just couldn't catch a break with that. Um, and then finally, just summoning up the courage to do it. And having that that faith and having that trust in the wonderful doctors that we met to say, yeah, there's risk involved here. A good outcome is not guaranteed by any means, but we need to do it. Yeah. And that's kind of um, how it played out. I mean, it was, like I said, he was born in May 2012. We ended up going down to Duke for the transplant in March of 2016. So again, this took us years to get both the information and the confidence and the courage to, to take that step. And I really want to emphasize that it was my wife leading the charge um, because, you know, I was amenable to this, but, you know, she, I was, this whole thing kind of jammed me up in a lot of ways personally. And uh, thank God for her, Felicia, who was able to kind of do the work and again, make the, uh, make the calls and lead the tough decisions. Mm, I love that you give her props because I, I think that even as a mom, sometimes there is this like deep drive within you when it comes to your kids that like you will go to the end and back and then 10 more times to, to help them in any way you can. And I can see how, I mean, I can only imagine what you guys went through in that, in that time frame. I mean, that must've just been not only incredibly tough knowing and, and caring for your son and his needs, but you have another child who needs her needs met. And then mm -hmm. you have a demanding career. You're mm -hmm. needing to provide for your family. You have mm -hmm. all these other life obligations and responsibilities. That's taxing on you mentally, physically, emotionally. What were some of your biggest personal challenges during that time period? 
Well, I think one of the things that our experience, and to a certain degree the book, um, illustrates is, you know, not to, not to kind of fall into stereotypical gender roles, uh, but it is often the case that the mother becomes the primary caregiver, okay? Yeah. And it is also often the case that men have a tougher time dealing with the onslaught of an emotional trauma such as this. Mm. And to a certain degree, I was stereotypical in that regard. Um, the first thing I tried, <clears throat> so, so the story is I kind of went on a long, almost comically, um, uh, almost comically incompetent uh, journey trying to find, you know, an approach to this whole thing that worked. Uh, the first thing I tried was denial. And like I said, you know, just trying to figure out what it would take just to get us back on track and, you know, refusing to acknowledge the proportions of the crisis. Okay. Right. Uh, I tried stoicism, right? And maybe this kind of comes from a certain macho understanding of what men are supposed to be like, which is not particularly helpful. Um, and just saying, treating the whole thing as a, as a test of endurance and a test of my will and a test of my toughness. Uh, and just trying to sweep everything under the rug and underreact radically uh, and not really allow space for the pain. Um, I tried workaholism and throwing, <clears throat> you know, because work, for a lot of people going through these crises, yes, it's an additional burden. Yes, it's an additional responsibility. You have to, you have to bring home a paycheck. You have to um, get health insurance if, you, uh, if your employer uh, provides health insurance. You have to keep that going. But work is also this kind of wonderful mirror world where, you know, responsibilities are defined, where, you know, projects get completed, where there's a sense of order, where there's a sense of control, where there's uh, some degree, I had some degree of status. Uh, things were safe for me in a way. And so I just, you know, tried to feed off that and compartmentalize the chaos that was our domestic situation. Um, but that doesn't work either. You know, yeah. the job will not save you. Um, uh, work is very fulfilling. Um, you know, it, all, all every, every social study shows that it's better to be employed than unemployed for long periods of time, but you cannot, or at least I cannot, um, derive all the meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy in my life from my, uh, employment. Yeah. Um, so that ended up backfiring too. So what did you have to do? Because I feel like when you get to this point, like where you're getting these backfires in life, like something has to change, whether that's a spiritual awakening or just mm -hmm. a shift in your life. So what was that for you? <clears throat> I'm sorry, what, what caused it or what was? Yeah. Yeah. Like what kind of like made you just like step aside and be like, okay, throwing myself into all these things isn't working. Like how, how can I shift self? Like, was there a defining moment that just kind of made you open your eyes and enact a change or what yeah. was significant? Well, to be blunt, um, you know, my, my marriage started crumbling mm. um, and the domestic situation started deteriorating. You know, I was, I was prone to, um, you know, um, you know, extended bouts of depression, intense um, periods of anxiety, outbursts of anger, which I thought were kind of the cure, the antidote for the sadness and the anxiety, but um, really were just, it was just a symptom of it. 
And so it came, uh, became clear that I needed to do the work, uh, or at least start doing the work. And again, I'm going to remind your audience that I am still very much a work in progress. I am not <clears throat> preaching to you from the mountaintop. I'm, uh, I'm still a street level um, guy just trying to keep it together and take the next steps. Um, but at that point, basically, I said I had a conversation with a good friend of mine, Dan Harris, who is a relatively well-known meditation practitioner. And I thought he was just going to say, you need to meditate, meditate, meditate. But actually, his advice was surround the football, try everything all at once. And I thought that was a little curious because I figured that he was just going to promote his modality of, uh, of self-help. Yeah. But he said, well, I want to try everything. And so I ended up trying maybe not everything, but I tried a lot of stuff. I tried meditation, which helped. Uh, I tried um, therapy. I tried medication. I tried exercise, um, which, of course, I mean, it sounds so trite, right? These are things that kind of everybody knows um, now. And you can't you can't um, you can't go 10 yards walking down, you know, an avenue in New York without somebody um, telling you how great mindfulness is. But, um, but it all does kind of uh, the whole kind of combo platter, the cafeteria style uh, self-help kind of what worked for me. And the reason I, I needed to do that was because not everything got me where I needed to be. Um, and I needed to kind of hopscotch around. I needed to have a kind of multi-pronged approach, excuse me. And that would be one little tidbit of something I learned, which is you don't have to feel guilty or you don't have to feel like you're cheating on your medication, excuse me, on your meditation uh, coach if you're also seeing a therapist. You don't have to feel that you're a failure as a therapy patient if you have to um, go on some sort of medication. You don't have to feel like, um, like you're embracing superstition if you find yourself praying and going to church. These are all things that can be tapped into to give you strength for the journey. And in my case, it took me a long time. I could tell you, it took me a long time to realize that um, it was okay to try any and all of the above. Um, you know, for some people, uh, myself included, you know, the ego is a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, I'm not the best looking guy in the world. I'm not the richest guy in the world. Um, my, my redeeming quality is the functioning of my brain. Um, that's the one thing I got going for me traditionally. That's how I make my living. Um, and when that's not working, when, you know, your, your one thing that you've got going for you is kind of malfunctioning in some regard, the gears are grinding, that's a tough pill to swallow. And yeah. uh, I resisted that for a long time to the detriment of everybody around me and myself. It's, it's interesting too, that you can see that it, you were having all this other things happen in life. You have a son who is fighting for his life. Um, but it was actually most impacted in your marriage that made you kind of take that step back and, and grab that cafeteria tray of all of those different modalities and just start picking away at them. And I think that's so awesome that, that you had the courage to just kind of go out on a limb and experience different ones. Because I think so often, if someone would like to try meditation and you sit down and you try meditation and it doesn't work, it's so easy to just write that off in that moment. Like, ugh, 
this doesn't work. And then to not try anything else because you may think that they have the same weight. Whereas you're like, you're saying you may find yourself going back and forth and between them of what you need in that moment and giving yourself permission to recognize your needs and then to also get them fulfilled of whatever that looks like. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, um, it's been said not by me that, you know, meditation works better as prophylaxis than as a band-aid, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people run to meditation when they're completely falling apart. And obviously that's, there's no, there's no shame in that, <clears throat> but I think for me, it kind of helps, um, as you know, well, it helped to a certain extent, just stabilize me and put some distance between me and my emotions and my tendency to overreact to things. Um, my tendency to kind of, um, you know, have outbursts that kind of inflated my ego temporarily and gave me a little sugar high, but were really just creating hell on earth. Mm. Um, you know, with these rare disease diagnoses, you know, the other thing is it's often the case that you parents are portrayed as these martyrs and superheroes who tap into these immense reservoirs of strength and and nobility and altruism and you know when i was stumbling you know that just kind of compounded it i mean i was i was being like a real loser like why can't i you know rise above like all these other um you know parents and families who seem to be able to do this just kind of reflexively Mm. um and uh yeah so the, the meditation uh helps um i recommend it and um particularly there's a practice called loving kindness that was taught to me that really helped kind of clarify things and, and ground me in um, certain values. Um, but I still need to do it. Otherwise, you know, I, I'm as prone to backsliding as anybody else. Yeah, so, absolutely. Again. And it's, it is, it's like that onion. We keep pulling back the layers every so often, you know, like when I've done that inner work, which I think when someone you had said, like, I need it to do the work. Sometimes people, when they're listening, if you haven't started your work, it's, it's hard to understand what that work is, but really it's just like that deep dive of self understanding why you work the way you do understanding your brain a little bit better, understanding your ego, your boundaries, your beliefs, like this all goes into it, um, of doing that work and peeling back that layer each time. It's like, oh, I've healed from this. And then you kind of get triggered a little bit and you're like, oh, crap, mm-hmm. I got yeah. I have to go deeper and that's okay. And I think that's part of life too. It's like that beautiful journey of life of those ups and downs of like, hey, I got this only for the universe to be like, you sure? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure? Absolutely. And, and just to, just to um, mention a little something from the book, you know, so the bottom line is we went to Duke University Hospital. We underwent this transplant. It worked out. We were very blessed. We had wonderful doctors and nurses, and it was just a transcendent experience in many ways, seeing how that place operates. Um, And then essentially my son was cured and we got sent home. And in 2017, um, you know, it was all supposed to be just celebrating like like the end credit sequence of Slumdog Millionaire with everybody doing a synchronized dance and singing. and, um, And then my son had a a setback, mm. a relatively minor setback. Ultimately, it was manageable, but he had a post-transplant setback, and I'm not proud to say it, but I fell apart again. And um, I was just like, oh, gosh, after all this, you know, we're, we're supposed to have the Hollywood ending now. It's supposed to be wrapped up in a bow. We're supposed to be, 
you know, sailing off into the sunset. Yeah. Here's and, your Hallmark movie. Yeah. Where's the Hallmark uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> movie? Yeah. Um, but it, it's messy that way, man. And, um, you know, you, it, it's not in some ways my son was easier to cure than I was, you know, it's, it's like, it's like working out, you know, I mean, you, you, yes, you can get in great shape uh, and I've gotten in decent shape in my time. Not wonderful shape. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, athlete but i got in good shape and but if i don't go to the gym um and if i don't eat right guess what i'm gonna have trouble fitting into my size 34 pants i'm right. gonna you know i'm gonna grow another chin um so you're not just automatically um you know guaranteed um uh, to be in your kind of quote-unquote elevated status by dint of having gotten there or gotten close to there at least once Right. Like we're not the Dalai Lama right now. Like we have, we have a lot to do. We haven't just ascended to this, you know, state of Nirvana at all points where we're on a path to, to reach it. And I, I think it's interesting that you said that in some ways it was harder to cure yourself than your son. How is he as I'm curious to know as a person who has mm -hmm. lived this life of in and out mm -hmm. of hospitals and mm -hmm you know, having this rare disease, how does that affect him on a day in and day out and his uh, just overall demeanor? Yeah. So um, there's two, there's two sides of that answer. The first is the kind of environmental and the, and the developmental part, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. So for the first four years of my life, you know, my son, some, some parts of his life were normal, but he still had to, I mean, he never knew a world where he wasn't taking medicine every day. He never knew a world where he wasn't getting poked by needles on a semi-regular basis. He never knew a world where he had to avoid certain things and, you know, had to be very careful around other kids. You know, he, we couldn't send him to any kind of preschool um, until he turned three. And that was risky and might have been a bad decision, actually. Um, but uh, and then he had this intense experience in the unit itself, which was long and painful and arduous and isolating. But as much as that unit was a place of intense suffering, it was also a place of intense love. Mm. And he felt that. And he, um, you know, he had wonderful quality time with his parents. He had wonderful attention from his nurses. I mean, I don't wish a bone marrow transplant on anybody, but you know, we went back there for a fundraiser a couple of years afterwards. And he kind of half jokingly said, Mommy, can I have another transplant? And he said, <laughs> Um, so, you know, and that really is a testament, of, again, primarily to his mother, but also to the wonderful doctors and nurses there who, um, made that experience and even that suffering, um, beautiful in its own way, mm. uh, to say nothing of the brilliance as, uh, uh, their, their medical prowess. Now, the other side of it is how has it affected him? Well, it's transformed him on a molecular level. I mean, my son today okay, is one of these very, very rare organisms that have two kinds of DNA inside their bodies at the same time. Wow. You take my son's, you know, if, if my son were to commit a crime and leave a blood sample, okay, and then the police were to come and uh, treat him as a suspect and take a saliva sample to test it against the blood sample, they wouldn't match. Wow. His blood is from the donor unit, and most of his other cells are the ones he was born with. Um, they call it chimerism um, 
from the the Greek mythological creature, the the chimera. And uh, it's one of those just jaw dropping things that I learned in the course of this process. That you know we're able to to do these things. We're able to create, for lack of a better term, these magical creatures um, in an attempt to to cure rare diseases. And it really is, aside from just being wonderful and awesome, it is a cause for optimism. You know, mm-hmm. I, I you know in COVID times, you know, let's face it, you know, the world is. The world gives us all sorts of reasons to be depressed and cynical and down. Um, but I found, among other things, uh, among many things on the cafeteria tray for me, was the study and appreciation and immersion in science. Mm-hmm. Science is a wonderful thing to read about. You don't, and you don't have to be a nerd to understand some of the basics of it, right? You, you don't have to be um, a professional, um, but just appreciating what we this little species on a relatively modest and un, unremarkable corner of the universe has been able to do uh, is pretty profound. And it's the incredible, that, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's to be it's to be understood and appreciated and encouraged and you know emulated to a certain degree. Mm, it is. It's definitely in- incredible, and I can go down the science hole too, which is fascinating to me because when you think back, like in my childhood state. I I could care less about science, right? But I think the older I get and I can see how it applies to your everyday life. And then, you know, like a pandemic, oh my goodness. Like you could definitely go down your own rabbit hole, (laughs) which is that, and just taking like what resonates, but also going beyond that and having your own personal beliefs challenged by something Um, Mm -hmm. like that's helping you grow to just expand your mind to something you just didn't even know was possible. Like, you're like, whoa, how did they even come up with this? And we could even dissect it the last 100 years in science, right? Like mm-hmm. wild, so wild. Well, you also, you know, you talk about community and, yes. you know, there's a meditation. One of my meditation teachers once said, you know, when you're sitting, when you're meditating, it's not just you and it's not just the other people um, in the room with you if you're doing it in a group setting, but there's thousands of years of of meditators meditating with you. And that was, I, I always found that to be a beautiful thought. And to a certain degree, follow me here, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a strained analogy, but I felt some of the same thing with the medical environment. When we were there in that hospital room, dealing with our son, who was just one patient of many, many patients, but we were kind of standing at a mountaintop, right? A mountain built with the sacrifices and the suffering and the study of all the other patients who came before, of all the doctors, of all the trial and error, of all the, um, you know, successful and failed um, experiments and clinical trials. And, you know, we were blessed, privileged to be right there at the cutting edge of human knowledge and being able to kind of enjoy the benefits of those sacrifice and it's very humbling and it's very important to keep for me to keep in perspective it's that it's that deep gratitude of and it's that it's that is that moment of mindfulness and awareness of just being able to sit there and and find your blessings in those really hard moments yeah um mm. now that said you know the the and this is something we touch on in the book too one of the kind of points of friction at in various times with my wife was that we were in kind of different positions or on different faith journeys, right? My my wife has always found it um, 
easier to kind of embrace religion and the kind of uplifting and empowering aspects of religion to give her, as I said, you know, the strength for the journey, the the ability to kind of um, transcend your own limits and do what you didn't think you're capable of doing. In her case, help guide her son through this this arduous ordeal. Um, and I was always kind of the more empirical, more skeptical, right? The the journalist who who sees the skull beneath the skin. Yeah. The guy who doesn't necessarily have time for that kind of thing. Give me the facts. Yeah. Let's <laughs> talk about what we know. Yeah. Right. Uh, which has its place. I'm not, obviously, I'm not dismissing all that. But I just, to paint a picture, you know, at the moment of the transplant, when our son is being infused with these kind of magical donor cells from, you know, somebody we, we never even met and never will meet, the doctors couldn't tell us how it was going to play out. They couldn't tell us whether or not it was going to work. They couldn't tell us why some patients have successful outcomes and why others don't. Uh, you just, and there's no magic to the transplant at all. It's a very simple process. You just make, you get the body prepared for it, which is a big undertaking. And then those cells go in and then they do their own thing. They magically know where to go and it works or if it, or it doesn't work. And at that moment, you are literally standing on the very boundary between what is known and how far science has gone and the unknown. Mm. And to take that step requires some degree of what we call faith. And um, and I say in the book, you know, I've, I've, I've been to the Vatican and I've been to the Western Wall, but it was there at my child's bedside that I felt closest to God. Mm. How do you think if you were to kind of classify yourself as Miguel pre, we'll say 2016 and Miguel post 2016, how do you look at yourself and the way that you have evolved as a person? Yeah, well, um, some of the things are kind of um, obvious, um, but they bear stating, you know, I, there's a lot of things I don't care about anymore. <laughs> I feel somewhat, and Felicia also, we feel somewhat liberated from the whole kind of parenting industrial complex where, you know, it's, it's, you're led to believe that unless you're, you know, paying through the nose for private lessons for everything and, and, and making sure that your kids have the best toys and games and lessons and uh, clothes and equipment and all that stuff and tutoring, you're somehow a failure or negligent. Uh, we don't think of parenting in those terms anymore. We're happy that our son is able to walk into a school and come back and uh, that he's able to eat and digest food, that he's able to, you know, um, get a mosquito bite and we don't have to worry about it. Mm. So these are all, uh, so that there's a certain perspective and emancipation uh, from that and from all other, you know, a lot of other things that people think are important. Um, and, you know, I, I'm also, I would say, comfortable kind of just being open about, about what happened here um, and kind of talking about these things publicly, you know, putting, putting it out there um, because, because the experience was very real. This is a kind of experience that just breaks you open and yeah. makes you kind of confront some of the ugly parts of yourself. Um, you know, I... You know, I want to say, I, you know, the, the experience 
in certain points brought out the worst in me, but the worst was, you know, I mean, I, I, I had some of these kind of issues before, of, you know, having anger management issues or, you know, kind of being arrogant or, you know, weaponizing my, my erudition, you know, the kind of things that people usually just describe as being a dick. Right. Um, I would like to say that <clears throat> I'm at least marginally less of a dick. Um, <laughs> post 2016. Hey, uh, I mean, I think that's always a win, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to think I'm a bit easier to be around. Yeah. Um, so. No, that, I. That, you go I ahead. think that's great. I was, I was just going to say, I think that's great, and I would also just like to commend you on leaning into the transparency and vulnerability of owning the story and sharing it because. We all know, and I say it all the time, that stories have the power to change lives. Um, and by sharing this, I mean, you never know whose life you're going to touch with this story or a parent who may be going through the same thing. And is finally like, yes, someone who like I can relate to, like I am in that depressed state right now. What can I do? Where is my cafeteria tray, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do I get one of those? And just give them that moment of hope or faith when they may not be able to see the light for themselves. So thank you for so boldly stepping into this power. I know it's not always the most comfortable, but it's, it's yeah. well needed. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that because I'll be honest with you. I've, I've had an ambivalence about this book since I first, um, since I first thought about writing it, you know, at, at one point I was like, you know, this would be a good story and I happen to be in it. So there's uh all sorts of uh, reasons to do this. And then I started actually writing it. I was like, wow, do I really want this all out there? And then ultimately I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this. There's always 10,000 reasons not to do something, right? Mm, yeah. And there's always pretty much just one reason to do something. And that is because you have to do it. Yeah. And that's what I ultimately decided that I kind of had to do this. And, you know, maybe it'll be well received. Maybe it won't be. Um, and I don't just mean the, the sales. I mean, you know, obviously I want to spare my publisher from embarrassment <laughs> make sure that it sells decent, but you know, it's not my dream to be, you know, the, the kind of guy with a toothy grin on a, on a, uh, inside flap photo, author photo. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just felt that I owed it to the community of rare disease people who dealt with this. I owed it to the doctors. It's kind of a thank you note. It's kind of a Valentine to them and what they do. Mm. I certainly owed it to my wife and my son and my daughter. And I owed it to the experience, you know? I mean, did the first caveman who, who, who drew on a cave wall think he was a great artist or um, think he was, you know, important? No, he probably just thought I had an experience that's worth remembering. Yeah. And that's kind of the thinking behind the decision to write this thing. Oh, I love that. And we had discussed that in the moment right now that we're talking today is the book's birthday. So mm -hmm. congratulations on that. But will you tell our audience where they can go to grab the book for themselves and where they can go to connect with you further? Yeah. So um, much to um, my children's and my publisher's embarrassment, I'm not a huge social media guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a Twitter handle. It's uh, at M-A-Sancho3, at M-A-S-A-N-C-H-O-3. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I, I'm happy to have more friends. Um, but the book, again, it's called More Than You Can Handle. There's a hashtag, More Than You Can Handle. And it is available on Amazon. 
Uh, it, is, it should be available at Barnes and Noble. And certainly if you go to the Penguin Random House uh, site, you'll also see a page there. So basically it should be as easy to purchase on uh, at your bookstore or on Kindle or the audiobook uh, as most other um, new releases. Oh, wonderful. Well, I am sending all of my good vibes to its well-received success, and I'll be sure to link it in this week's episode notes so our audience can go and, and snag it quickly. But Miguel, I am so inspired by you, your wife, Alicia, as well as Sebastian. Thank you for boldly sharing your story and for shining your bright light in this world. Lauren, it's such a pleasure to be with you, and uh, thank you for all the great work you're doing, and um, you know, thank you to your listeners, and you know, just keep it going. I received Miguel's book about two weeks after we recorded, and I just began reading it this past weekend. I encourage every listener to go get this book. I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface, and I've learned so much, and I'm gaining an even better insight to the journey of this family. I've linked Miguel's new website, his book, and Twitter on this week's episode notes found on mindbizlife.com. Don't forget to let me know what resonated with you on today's episode. Share that feedback with me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at mindbizlife. And don't forget to drop your five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you tune in and turn it up. I'm back on Friday for another episode of Fuel Your Life Friday. But until then, remember, every level of life is an opportunity to grow. Be well, my friend.